Good morning. Hey, good to be with you guys this morning. In case we haven't met, my name is Chris Campbell, longtime friend of CBC, uh, founder and director of a ministry called Generation Freedom, and I also do Christian counseling in the area. And I've had the opportunity on uh, two prior occasions to help fill the pulpit here, and evidently didn't Charlie Brown it too bad uh, because I've been invited back today and actually next week. So we're going to be spending two Sundays together unpacking a passage of Scripture in the book of Ephesians. So if you've got your Bibles, pull up your apps. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. And what, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a two-part series entitled, Who Do You Think You Are? Who do you think you are? We are going to be drilling down into the idea of personal identity, uh, how we perceive ourselves. Now, I can tell you uh, that as a longtime pastor and now as a, as a counselor, uh, that there are very few things that will impact the direction of your life and your day-to-day choices like your perception of self. Uh, Proverbs 23, 7 says, as a person thinks in their heart, so they are. And what that means is is that your personal beliefs will dictate your behavior on a day-to-day basis. And I think one of the most important things that we grapple with as human beings is our, our personal sense of identity. Who are we? And the book of Ephesians is all about identity. As a matter of fact, the book of Ephesians was written to a church in a way that was to further establish a notion of a new identity that is granted to every human being that chooses to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. In six short chapters, the Apostle Paul makes over 40 references to what it means to be identified in Christ and Christ in us. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, he sort of distills it down into a very intensive power-packed thrust of identity. And what we're going to do over the next two Sundays is we're going to unpack those 10 verses in a way that hopefully will answer the question, who do you think you are? Now, uh, a couple of, of just upfront full disclosure uh, that, so you know where I'm coming from with this so that we can sort of springboard into the text this morning. Uh, the first notion that I want to be just really upfront with you guys about is that uh, when it comes to defining you know, yourself, when it comes to who we think we are, uh, let me tell you this. You are who God says you are even on your very best or worst days. I want you to think about that. I want want to explain that. We're going to back up and hit that again. But you are who God says you are, even on your very best or worst days. Uh, We are the created. He is the creator. Therefore, he has it within his authority to declare our identity based on his design and assessment in our lives. Uh, One of the biggest mistakes that I find personally that I fall into or that other people fall into is that we live in a world that tends to pitch a very high view of man and a low view of God. And we get in a lot of trouble when that happens because the scripture comes at us and says, hey, we need to first have a very high view of the creator and then put in its rightful place the position of the created. And so one of the things that you're going to see as we unpack this scripture is you're going to see a very strong opinion that I have based on the scripture and personal experience that you are, I am, we are who God says we are even on our very best or worst of days. 
The second thing I want to point out before we read these 10 verses together is that the Apostle Paul has this unique way of, of engaging the listener or the reader to his letters. And, and what he will often do over the scope of a, of a full letter to a church or even in a passage within that letter is he'll come at us with this idea of, listen, uh, I got some good news and I got some bad news. I'm going to do you a favor and give you the bad news first. Now, now, how many of you are like it when somebody comes to you and says, I got good news, bad news, how many of you are bad news first people? That's, that's me. I'm a bad news first guy, uh, especially if my kids are coming to me. I got, Dad, I got good news, bad news. Give me the bad news first because my, my reasoning for that is if I can somehow absorb the bad news, right, if it doesn't crush me, then I hope against hope that somehow the good news will offset the bad news. Or maybe if I'm really fortunate, the good news will really, you know, supersede and just far outshine the bad news. And so the Apostle Paul is an ambassador of good news. Actually, we call it the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. And so often in his writing, what he does is before he sets out the good news of the gospel, he brings us in real close to an upfront examination of the bad news so that we can further appreciate the glory of the good news. In this passage and in these two weeks that we're together, we got some good news and we got some bad news. And the first three verses, which is what we're going to concentrate on today, is the bad news. And some of you are here going, well, we got guest speakers on Sunday mornings at CBC, and they all full of encouragement and warm, fuzzy feelings about God, and I'm going to roll out on a hot morning in air-conditioned, and I'm going to be encouraged and excited and motivated, and you just heard me say that, and you're like, wait, what? <laughs> I, I promise I won't let you leave here bummed out this morning. But this morning, what we're going to look at in these first three verses is the doctrine of sin. And the doctrine of sin has everything with the point of beginning with our identity. And then next week, I promise you, we're going to have more than double the verses to unpack the good news. And it's really good news. But it's sort of going to be a cliffhanger. I'm going to get you to come back maybe next week, right? Maybe bring a friend with you next week. Because the good news is really good news. Amen? Amen. So let's pray together. And before we dig into God's word, let's invite God to dig into us with his word. And so, Father, we turn our hearts to you once again this morning. And, Lord, we're so thankful that, God, that in a, in a world that is ever-changing and unpredictable, uh, you never change. And your, your love never uh, fails It never alters its course. Lord, you are a continual source of guidance and wisdom for us. And your scripture is supernatural. It's alive and it is able to cut to the heart of the issue in each of our lives personally and corporately together as a community of faith. And so this morning, Lord, we open our minds and our hearts to you. And Father, in Jesus' name, we ask that there would be an illumination by your spirit, the Holy Spirit, that we might begin to develop a perspective on identity, Lord, that reflects the reality of who you say we are. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, 
Amen. All right, let's, uh, let's read this together. We'll go 10 verses, and then we'll back up and dig into the first three. So I'm reading from the ESV version here. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, but God. If you've got a hard copy of a Bible, you may want to circle those first two words uh, because that is where this passage hinges this morning. Uh, without, without being too irreverent, let me just tell you, there are some big butts in the Bible. There's some big butts in there, and this is one of the biggest butts that you will find in the Bible. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them." If you look at how Paul starts this passage, he makes a declaration, and he's talking to the Christians there, and he is addressing them as Christians, but he is drawing their attention to their life in their B.C. days before Christ. He's having them think back to who they were before Christ, and he makes this incredible declaration that should conjure this this. Uh, this this word picture in our mind that sort of pops. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Let me explain that to you a little bit. So um, this, uh, as a, as first of all, as a follower of Jesus and a Christian, let me assure you the number one book in my life is the Bible. Okay, uh, but as a professional counselor, this is starting to run <laughs> a quick second as far as my responsibility. So you may not know what this is. This is this thick manual known as the DSM-5 is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Ooh. <laughs> It is packed full of mental disorders, of personality disorders, of childhood developmental disorders, and it's all coded, and it gives a description of what to look for and treatment plans and so forth. And when I sit down with clients, I am responsible to listen to their story and to try to understand what is it that's got them stuck so that as we work on a plan to get unstuck, I am doing a professional service and I am cataloging all the notes in the right way as we're working with insurance companies and other healthcare providers and so forth, right? And here's what I will tell you after working to become more and more established in the community here over the last couple of years. In North Central West Virginia, I specialize typically in adolescents. I love working with men. And here's what I can tell you. Uh, there is a lot of stressed out people here in our culture, right? 
right? <laughs> there, I meet a lot of people who come into my office and they are stressed, right? And, and that puts me in the place here that covers anxiety and anxiety disorders. And as, we're, as I'm, I'm in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, well, what type of anxiety is triggered, is, is, is governing this person? Here's what I can tell you, is stress in your life that is not managed will leave the door open for fear that will drive you, that will control you and influence you. So very often, I find people who come in with anxiety disorders, and they're also struggling with phobias. A phobia is an irrational fear. So you guys know what I'm talking about with that? So if I have a client in my office who comes in and sits down and they just feel like the room is way too small and they're uncomfortable about that, they may have what? Claustrophobia, right? Uh, I find that where I live this year, there's just an inordinate amount of spiders. <laughs> I don't know why that is. I clean off all the cobwebs and treat the outside of the house, and the next day I get up, it looks like the Adams family, right? And if I, if I had a fear of, of spiders, if that was really disturbing me and controlling me, it would be said that I had arachnophobia. Very good. So I have to stay up to date on this book, and I also have to know, are there any new phobias that we see out there on the horizon? And, and sometime back, I caught, uh, you know, as I'm going to the websites that I'm responsible for as a, as a counselor, I caught this new phobia that had appeared and was trending across the Western world and especially here in the United States. And I looked at it and I thought, I don't know what that is. And so I clicked on the definition and I saw the definition and I thought, you have got to be kidding me. This has got to be a joke, all right? Just, you know, so I clicked on the description and I totally expected to find a picture and a punchline and it was no joke. So I'm going to let you guys take a stab at what this is. Throw that first slide up there if you would. Kind of mortophobia. Now, don't check. Don't cheat on your smartphone or your tablet or anything. Anybody know what that phobia is? What is it? Next slide. Very good. The fear of zombies. Hold on a second, man. High five. That's the first time I've ever heard anybody get that right. All right. Very good. Fear of zombies, right? Um, we have, I'm not an expert on zombies, because I'm not a nerd. No. <laughs> Making friends. Um, no, but I looked at that and I thought, oh my goodness, you know, is this for real? And if you stop and think about it, you know, coming out of the 20th century into the 21st century, there's just a lot of media that's generating a lot of money based on the unreal undead, right, <laughs> that, that just sort of freaks people out. And so we have video games and literature and comic books and TV shows, of course. I'm not judging you on what you watch on Sunday nights. Uh, you know, and movies, you know, of the zombie apocalypse and so forth. And it sort of seems funny, but let, let's say for a second, let's say for a second that the possibility of zombies, these animated corpses, right, walking around sort of impulsively, let's say that was a possibility. Now, you would be concerned about this, yes? Because there's something disturbing about encountering something that looks remotely human, but when you get up on it, it looks like death, it smells like death, it feels like death, 
ah, you know, it's like that is disgusting. It's unnerving. That would be like, that would be enough to freak you out if, you're, if there were such a thing. And it dawned on me, the Apostle Paul wants us to understand that the point of beginning for every one of us, according to verse 1 here, is that we were dead in our sins and trespasses in which we once walked. The walking dead. And I thought, you got what? And so I dusted off my, my Greek lexicon and, my, and my, my Greek New Testament, and I, I got in and I looked because I know that, that, that providentially God had that New Testament written in the Greek language because it's the most specific language ever. And I read down through it word for word, and that is exactly the picture the Apostle Paul chose to paint to this group of believers to make it pop, to make it grab their attention. That our point of beginning before Christ as we come into the world is literally that of the walking dead. The walking dead. Now, I'm going to ask you to keep that in mind this morning because what we're going to look at has everything to do with us naturally coming into the world being dead. And if, you're, if you take notes, you know, on the, on the back of your bulletin when you came in, what we're going to do is, based on these first three verses, is I'm going to show you three things about sin that clarifies our zombified state for us so that we can get it framed. Where is the point of beginning with our identity as we come into the world? God looks at the world, and he classifies humans in basically two different categories. There's two different identities that we can have. And the first thing that you have to understand is that we are marked by sin, every one of us. And the first point of sin is that it always yields death in our life. Sin always yields death. Uh, there are two words there in verse 1, trespasses and sins. It seems like those are synonyms. They're a little different. Let me, let me explain it to you. A trespass, as it's used in the Bible, is, is very much like a physical trespass in our, in our day and age concerning geography or virtual reality or whatever. And there are certain people in authority that have established boundaries. And the boundaries are there so that you should not cross those boundaries, either going in or coming out. And they have the right to do so, to put those parameters. And when you and I trespass... It means that we are dismissing their authority and we are elevating ourselves above their authority and we're choosing to go wherever we want, whenever we want, however we want to. That is a trespass. And when the Bible talks about trespasses, that is what we do with God's holy law. God puts moral boundaries in place so that we might better sync up with him. And when we dismiss his authority, and when we choose to step over those boundaries, we are putting ourselves in a place where we are dismissing God and his authority. We are acting in a way that he wishes we would not act. A sin is just a real simple word that means missing the mark. So... We are not only marked by death because of sin, because we overstep boundaries, but we're also, we also miss the mark. And that means that there are times in our life where we don't, we don't demonstrate a behavior, an attitude, a character, an action that reflects our creator. 
We miss the mark. We can't sync up. And God says the first point of, of sin when that happens is it always poof, confirms death in a person's life. It confirms death as a byproduct, and it confirms death as a consequence. You guys with me? So I'm going to take a little longer on this first point. We'll hit the next two. We'll wrap up today. But I, I want to drill into this because I find that there's a lot of, of confusion over this. So if you want to understand the consequences of sin and the byproduct of sin being death, we have to go all the way back to the beginning. Now, you don't have to turn there this morning, but when we look back in the book of Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2 is very insightful to this. Helps us understand. Genesis 1 is a telescopic view of creation. And God does everything in the first five days to lay the groundwork for the sixth day, which is going to be his crowning achievement with creation. And in that day, it says, and God made man in his image. Male and female, he created them in his image. And at the end of chapter 1, God gives himself A+. Plus. He says, it was very good. It's exactly what he had in mind. And then in Genesis chapter 2, you go from a telescopic viewpoint of creation into a microscopic viewpoint of creation. And there it begins to break down, you know, mankind. And he was designed in God's image. And God looked at this dude and said, it's not good to be alone. We need to upgrade to 2.0. And so from his rib, he creates woman, which is complementary. And those three were designed to be in a tight union of oneness. We would call it a covenant. God made man to be one with him. God made man and woman in this relationship to be husband and wife. It was to be a tight, tight covenant relationship of oneness. It was beautiful. God put them into a perfect environment full of raw resources, everything that they would need. And since they were made in the image of the creator, he said, go be little me's, go have dominion. Go, go through a creative process, personalize this environment, make it your own, have fun. I have given you everything you need. I've given you anything you would want for nutrition, vegetables, fruit, every herb-bearing plant. Just don't eat of this one tree that's in the middle of this garden, right? And what happened? Now... They ate, right? Genesis chapter 2 goes into Genesis chapter 3. Satan shows up, and the first thing he does is start dialoguing with Eve. The Bible clearly says that he tricked her, he deceived her, she ate, she trespassed. Adam knew, Adam watched, Adam went ahead and did it anyway. And they both sinned, they both trespassed. Now, God said, if you eat of that tree, in the day you do, you shall surely what? Die. But did they die? All right, so that's a trick question in Christian circles, right? We sort of wink and elbow each other. We know that's a trick question, right? And the truth of the matter is, I can make an argument but that from that point, Adam and Eve started the long march to the grave. Didn't happen immediately, but it happened. But I can make an argument from Scripture that when they sinned, as a byproduct of that sin, they died spiritually. Because what oneness can a holy God have with unholiness? 
What type of, of perfect union can a perfect God have with imperfection? What kind of, 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 of connection can righteousness have with unrighteousness? You know, when, when God breathed the breath of life in them, that's the same word that we use for spirit. And it was an infusion of life that was meant to not only connect them to their creator, but infuse them with power to live out a life that reflected their creator. And when that sin came, it severed that. And you can see the fallout right away. Darkened in their thinking, dominant negative emotions. Genesis 3 is a train wreck. And so they, they suffered the consequences as a byproduct of sin being death. Now, I meet a lot of people who say, man, that just does not seem fair. Seems like God was just setting them up, Right? to fail. Because if you and I are told something that's off limit, what, what do we normally want to do? <laughs> How close can I get to the line, right, without going over? Or can I step over and get back without, without getting hurt? And, and here's what I would say. Um, Adam and Eve were perfect in their design. They didn't have a sin nature. They, they didn't have a natural drawn towards that which is wrong. And so number one, uh, that wasn't a, a, an unusual or an unfair temptation. And the second thing is, if you think about the whole tree that's forbidden in the garden, that's like you and me having like a super rich friend with a grand estate. And they say, hey, we want you to move in, make the place your own, personalize it. Whatever resources are there are yours. Use it like it's yours. Just don't drink the last Pepsi. <laughs> right? God needed to put that tree there, folks, so that Adam and Eve could understand that God had endowed humanity with freedom. God had endowed humanity with free will. Uh, God had given them the opportunity to be so much more than puppets on a string, but that they could reciprocate his love through obedience and through, through respecting the boundaries that were there. I meet a lot of people inside and outside the church. And check this. If you ask them today, the average person, hey, what is freedom? How do you define freedom in your own words? They're going to tell you, the majority will tell you, freedom is being able to do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want to. That's freedom. Do you guys agree with that? That's a popular notion of freedom. Um, I can make a secular argument that that's wrong. Uh, because being able to do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want to, uh, that's not freedom. That's called anarchy. And anarchy provides a culture with no sense of safety or peace. Uh, we live in a nation that's considered the leader of the free world, yes? And we're considered free people here. Our constitution guarantees our freedom. Yet, you and I, we can't do whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want to. If, if you left here this afternoon and went to a matinee and you decide you're just going to stand up and yell fire, like your B-U-T-T is going to jail, right? You know, if you want to joke around at the airport with the TSA, not a good idea. So, so listen, freedom is not being able to do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want to. Catch this. Freedom is giving you the opportunity to recognize what's right and then the freedom to choose to do what's right. That's freedom. And that's what God had established in the garden. But because they chose to trespass, because Adam and Eve chose to sin, 
There was a disconnect that happened from God, and in that moment, that disconnect caused spiritual death in their lives. And the bad news gets worse because that spiritual death is transferable. Romans 5 says, 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because of sin. So it wasn't just that Adam and Eve were now marked by sin and death in their identity, but guess what? Their kids were marked by this identity. Their kids' kids were marked by this identity. Their kids' kids' kids. You know, and on it goes throughout all humanity. We are marked by an identity of sin and death. We call it the sin nature. As a matter of fact, Psalm 51.5 says we're even conceived in iniquity. Bummer. And that's just point one <laughs> of the doctrine of sin. So beyond the byproduct being sin, we all have it. The consequence, the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death, right? Look at what else the Apostle Paul says here. It says that we were dead in our sins and trespasses in which you once walked. Catch this. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. So if point one of the doctrine of sin is that sin yields death, the second point here that Paul points out is that sin dominates us. In our natural state, sin dominates us, and it comes at us from three different places. Did you catch them there? There's three different ways that sin moves in and leverages our identity, our natural human nature against us. What's, what's the first one? Can you find it? Culture, very good. Following the course of this world. Uh, do you know that we live in a world that is blind to the things of God? Jesus said it's the wide way, it's the easy way, it's the path of least resistance, but if you follow it, it's going to lead to destruction. The world will not resist you if you choose to live a life in rebellion to God. Did you know that? Right? The world comes at us and says, don't make a big deal, don't be difficult, just assimilate Go with the flow. Join our zombie horde, you know, as we move out mindlessly, animated corpses. So the world is one way that sin dominates us. What's the, what's the second there that he points out in that group of? Satan, right? Following who? Right? The spirit that's at work in this world. And the sons of disobedience. Uh, did you know that you and I have an adversary who is a, a spiritual force of wickedness and he has a hierarchy of the demonic realm that follow and their desire is to distract us from the love of God, to distract us from our creator. If it distracts from God, if it stains us, if it erodes trust, if it blinds us to the truth, then he's pushing it. And so the world and Satan, they dominate us through sin. And what's the third way that we're dominated by sin? It's an open book quiz. I'll let you look. Yeah, the, the flesh, right? The cravings 
of the flesh. It's like, I know I should probably check in here spiritually and do what's right, but your body and mind are constantly telling you, gratify me, gratify me, gratify me, right? And, and, and the way that natural man comes into the world, marked by death, this living corpse, sin leverages our flesh against us as well. As a matter of fact, Romans 6 says, we're a slave to sin. We've got no choice in the matter. It's just how we have to live to exist. So point one is that sin yields death. Point two is that sin dominates us in our original identity. And then check out the third point here. It says in verse three, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now I find that phrase very interesting. Because the Apostle Paul could have said, and we were by nature men of wrath, women of wrath, adults of wrath, politicize it, Democrats of wrath, Republicans of wrath, you know, on and on it goes. But here he says, children of wrath. That is a sobering statement, guys. There's certain things I don't understand. I, I don't understand the age of accountability. I, I don't know at what point a person has enough information and understanding that they're responsible for their sin nature before God. I, I don't know that. But what this verse is telling me is that we're hardwired with sin in our DNA from the very start. Like I said earlier, from the very point of conception. I have a, a good friend that I co-authored a book with. Uh, Sean Smucker, and, um, and this past week, he and his wife had their sixth kid, and uh, pray for them. <laughs> but anyways, a beautiful little girl named Poppy, and he's Mr. Instagram, and so, you know, it's just picture, 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 and, uh, and offline, I was sort of joking with him about, man, she is a beautiful bundle of iniquity, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and he sort of laughs about that, you know, he's like, yeah, you know, because just being born in a Christian family doesn't make you okay. You guys know that, right? I mean, just that doesn't automatically just, you know, as you come through the birth canal and boom, you know, uh, you're all of a sudden a Christian because you're in a Christian family. That is not the way it works. We have this nature that needed to be, that needs to be contended with. And it, and it, it reveals itself all the time. So like, um... <laughs> I, I do weddings occasionally. I hate weddings. I, I don't hate weddings. I hate to officiate weddings. Let me clarify. I'm licensed here in the state of West Virginia. It is so stressful. It ought to be an anxiety disorder, right? Because as, as a wedding uh, officiant, as a pastor who officiates, uh, there's so much stress on you and the wedding coordinator, as I put it, the offensive coordinator and the quarterback, right? Um, because the bigger the wedding and the more traditional, the more moving pieces, and it can get just really, really confusing. Uh, and uh, and sometime back, I did a, a wedding, did a favor for a guy I worked with when he was a teenager, and he played a lot of Division One ball and tried to make a go in the major leagues, and, uh, and he got engaged. And so uh, it was really cool. It was just like a huge, huge wedding. Like a, one of the groomsmen, he was a second baseman for the San Diego Padres. And, and it was just like this sort of over-the-top thing. And, um, and I felt a lot of pressure. <laughs> and and, the, and, the, and the, the wedding coordinator 
as well. And we had to make a facility work that was, uh, it wasn't like a conventional straight line down the aisle to the altar type of facility we were in. The, the, the groomsmen had to sort of come out and, and position ourselves, uh, you know, from an unusual entry point. And then the, the whole procession, the bridal procession, they had to like start from the back and they sort of came in from the side and meandered their way until they had a, a straight shot here. And right away at the rehearsal on Friday night, I thought, uh-oh, we got a problem. Anybody know what the biggest X factor is as far as weddings go? The, the, the quickest thing that can derail a wedding? Single ladies in the house and moms of the bride, you better be very sure who you're choosing to be your flower girl or your ring bearer. <laughs> so, so this first night... <laughs> I mean, this is the rehearsal night. So we show up, and, uh, and the ring bearer is this little dude, and he is just incredibly shy. And he's surrounded by adults, and he has no idea what a wedding is. He's never seen one, doesn't he? And so he's just, like, reserved and withdrawn to himself. And men in the room, we don't notice stuff like that. You know, it's like we don't care. But the nurturers in the room, they notice it right away. And so a child's uncomfortable. We need to make him comfortable. And so, uh, so the women start, like, drawing him out and engaging him and telling him just what a big boy he is for being a part of this wedding and how important he is and how splendid he's going to look in his little suit and how, what, a, what, a, what an important thing to carry those rings on and on. And by the, by the time we go through the second run-through of the procession, uh, he's walking up the aisle like he owns the place, right? <laughs> so much so that he turns around and he evaluates that the father of the bride's not doing a very good job. So he goes back and decides he's going to escort the bride. And all the while, people are going, oh, isn't that cute? And they're taking pictures of it, you know, and everything. And I'm going, this is not going well. <laughs> this, is, this is not going to end out well. Uh, at the rehearsal dinner, I told my wife, I said, I'm going on record right now. Uh, this little dude's going to try to hijack the service tomorrow. She goes, oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. So we got, we got into the service. And all the groomsmen are front and center, and we're all accounted for, and everything's well. And the procession starts, and everything's happening, and the bridesmaids come through, and, 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 the, and the flower girl is coming through, and she's dropping her petals just perfectly. coming, And, and then all of a sudden, there's a pause. And I can't see, everybody's seated, but this, the little dude's only about three foot tall. I can't see, but in the back, I can see the wedding coordinator and there's just like a vein popping on their head, right? <laughs> and they're smiling as if everything's okay. I'm not mad. I'm not mad. But they're getting ticked. And they're, they're in a full-blown power struggle with this little guy because he is refusing to come up the aisle because that girl littered his aisle with her trash. <laughs> I kid you not. And he is, he's, I'm not going until she picks it up, right? That's the truth. And so they finally get him to go. They finally get him to go, and that little turd, <laughs> can I say that here? Because that's what he was. Um, he comes up there, he is literally picking those pedals up and putting them in his pocket as he comes. I'm going, oh, this is good. And so he, come, he comes up near where he's supposed to just bear to the right and take his place in front of the grooms, and he sees there's a stage behind me, and he says, I'm going up on stage where everybody can see me. And so he goes to the left. I've already given the signal for everybody to stand. The bride's coming in. Everybody's watching her 
mom, grandma, the other women, they're all freaking out because he's up on stage. They're trying to get him off. Get him, come, come. And he's, he's not having it. And I'm thinking, everybody's watching the bride. I, I should like, this is Snapchat, man. I should be getting this on. <laughs> I, should be, I should be getting this on there. I didn't. He stayed up there, and he had to be physically removed from the stage. Then he had to be physically removed from the auditorium because he went into a full-blown meltdown. And <laughs> just a full-blown meltdown. And I'm, I'm sharing that with you, not to, not to make fun and, and to be a hypercritical. But listen, nobody had to teach him how to do that. Nobody had to teach a kid how to do that. You and I, we, nobody had to teach us how to be selfish or how to throw a fit. I'm pretty sure most of us in the room mastered the words no and mine, right, quicker. As an older brother of four siblings, nobody had to teach me how to pick on them until they cried. <laughs> because it's a part of our nature. We're wired with sin, and we're not only marked by death, and we're not only put in a position where sin dominates us, but sin puts us in a position where naturally our identity has us staring down the barrel of God's wrath. Because his holiness will not share the universe ultimately with unholiness. He will not share his position of rightness with unrighteousness. It's an issue that has to be dealt with. Question, how many sins does it take for a person to become a sinner? Now, you better think about that one. Because there's a popular notion that says we come into the world neutral, and then at some point in time, we trespass or we sin, and therefore we become a sinner. And that is not true. We come into the world as a natural-born sinner, and our sin confirms our identity. We are hopeless. We are marked by death. We're dominated by sin, staring down the barrel of God's wrath. But how does verse 4 start? But God. But God. Turn to John chapter 3 with me. John chapter 3. If the, if the answer to the question, how many sins does it take for a person to become a sinner, is zero because you're born that way, then we need to think about, well, how many good works does it take for a person to become right with God? And the answer is, Zero. Your good works does not change your identity. And Jesus, in John chapter 3, has this incredible dialogue with a guy named Nicodemus, who I think was the most sincere follower of God on planet Earth during that day. And, and, and Nicodemus had the idea. He understood the doctrine of sin, but somehow he thought his identity could be changed if he did all the right things. Therefore, he occupied this position of Pharisee. 
And he was sort of the custodian of the law that helped people understand right from wrong. And so therefore, as he invited Jesus into this dialogue, he's expecting to be affirmed for all of his hard work in religion. And he's expecting for Jesus to look at him and to recognize he's not a sinner like everybody else. And Jesus in John chapter 3 rocked his world in verse 3 where it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If you're a sinner because you're born that way, if I'm a sinner because I'm born that way, then in order for me to be right with God and to get a new identity, I have to be reborn. Yes? And Nicodemus says, what are you talking about? Are you suggesting that I need to crawl up in my mom's womb again and start this process over? Verse 6, Jesus says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. We're talking about a spiritual rebirth and a dialogue here that showcases the most popular verse in all of the Bible. John 3, 16. How many of you have heard this verse? Some of you have memorized this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe on him, not work hard for a new identity, not work hard to overcome your sin nature, whosoever should believe on him should not perish, should not be marked by death, should not be stained with sin, should not be dominated with sin, should not come in under the punishment of God's wrath for sin, but what? Have eternal life. Church, will you listen to me? The message of good news of Christianity isn't that God makes bad people good. It's that God makes dead people alive. Alive. And, and what I want to leave with you this morning, because we're going to unpack that life next week. But I just suspect in a crowd this size that maybe there's somebody here going, oh my goodness, I realize why this doesn't work for me. I'm trying to live the life of a person who's alive and I'm still spiritually dead. Light bulb moment. This is what, you know, God is revealing this to you through his word. And I'm just, I'm just going to take a chance here. I know this is deeply personal and private. But I just want, is there anybody here that says, I never understood eternal life and the good news to be that. And I want in. Is there anybody here this morning that says, I want in? I'm not trying to embarrass you. I'm not going to point you out. But is there anybody here? Let me give you the freedom to examine yourself. Scripture says, let's examine ourselves and see if we're of the faith. Not so that you might be condemned. Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but that you might receive the life that Jesus Christ died to give you. I'm going to be available up front after service. If you're a leader here at CBC, come on up, make yourselves available. If, if you would like to know more about how to pass from death to life, come talk to me, please.